Ernest, what's up? Y'all know I'm big on doing your research, sharing your research, and giving credit to where you found the research. But I always get asked the same question. Where do I start with the research? And the answer is easy. It's our sponsor, Yahoo Finance. Whether I'm tracking the daily movement of my favorite companies, doing technical analysis with their easy-to-use charting platform, or checking balance sheets, Yahoo Finance makes something very complex simplified. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or you're looking for extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. You could actually securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including your 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors. And it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. You heard me, yahoofinance.com. Don't wait, don't hesitate. I use it. You should go over there and start using it now. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Earners, the year is almost halfway over. Do not miss this opportunity to scale to the next level. EYL University is the biggest institution when it comes to business online, period. We have ramped up things in 2021 with over 20 infinity groups, including our breakout crypto club, which is fastly becoming one of the top online communities for cryptocurrency information. It also includes MG The Mortgage Guy's Home Buyer's Blueprint Volume 1. It also includes monthly financial planning calls with yours truly. It also includes our book club, our movie club, access to our private Facebook group with over 6,000 members, access to over 100 past webinars, and access to weekly webinars from industry experts. All that and more for a limited offer of 60% off. That's right, 60% off of the annual tuition. Go to EYLUniversity.com right now and become an earner. My graduates from my school being Forbes. Backdrop. Backdrop. <laughs> a mic drop. Backdrop. Backdrop. As far as you getting in the game, um, how did how did your career path take as, as a producer first and even figuring out as far as like points on an album and negotiating royalties and things of that nature? Yeah, I mean, I think now more than ever, it's, it's important to know your math <laughs> on that. I think really when I when I was getting started, the the goal, and I think actually in a lot of ways when people start getting into music, 
they just say, look, I just want to have the biggest hits possible, and you know, it's inevitable if I have a really big hit that I'm 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 gonna get paid. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, there's a lot of there are a great number of revenue streams, and there are a great number of revenue streams that are potentially overlooked. And so, you know, for me coming up in the game, I was very fortunate to have really great mentors and uh, folks that were working with me, had signed me, management, all of that. And so they really helped me to sit down and and understand not only just my paperwork and my contracts, Mm -hmm. but what all the actual revenue streams are. So with music, I mean, first of all, I, I, I would say, look, information is so readily available online. It's just about knowing what to search mm-hmm. and then also knowing what's reliable. And so, listen, you know, for me, even still today, there's your performance rights organizations, which is like your ASCAP, your BMI. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you have your actual uh, publishing. So whoever's actually administering your publishing. So I know there's a ton of folks that are putting music up on Spotify and, you know, distributing their music through an aggregator like a CD Baby, Distro Kid, Concord. whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, they completely overlook the actual uh, other side of the publishing and so you still need an administrator on that publishing side and that's and so um, you know I just had a great meeting with downtown music holdings and they've got probably one of the, the leading from a technology standpoint um, uh, platforms for that publishing administration is called song trust and so you know I think uh, nowadays everything is basically self-service and software mm-hmm. really has been that equalizer i would say and for me i just like to be in control of my revenue stream so i like to be able to look at uh be able to just log in to my accounts and see them all uh even if that means that you know they may be delayed i just want to be uh 100 on top of them so i mean i'm not sure if i'm even answering your question per se when i first got started i would just say look i was very much concerned with an advance and i think a lot of folks when they first get started You've been living in the basement. You've been, you know, yeah. living out the trap wherever you live in. You want that advance because that advance is that first way that you're going to pay for all those years of starvation, if you will. So the, the advance is the money that the record label is giving to you saying, like, here's the money that you get to do the, the project. Yeah. And I mean, it's actually an advance against your royalties. Okay. Right. So um, on the artist side, depends on the type of deal you make. Uh, and, and I mean, listen. Business is really just business, uh, and whatever you sign is whatever you sign. I, I know there's definitely always been a lot of talk about like, hey, you know, people are, you know, they got they got into slave deals, and you know, you hear these kinds of, <laughs> Wait, you hear these kinds of like, yeah, <laughs> overtones all yeah, the time. Yeah, yeah. At the end of the day, I think you know, as long as you've got good legal counsel and you're sitting down and you're looking at your contracts, you're definitely the final arbiter of what deal you get into and so it's important for you just to just know and be informed so for me my bible level primer for the music industry and this is an age-old primer is a donald passman book all you need to know about the music business it's updated all the time and i you know i always recommend look somebody that really wants to know they can start there and it's updated and it was written by an attorney uh who definitely just understands just the nuances of the business and then uh you know, no matter what's actually written in the books, it's different when you're actually sitting across a negotiation table yeah. and you're going to negotiate whatever deal is best for you at that time. And so, you know, I find that there are a lot of folks that when they're sitting at their at that negotiation table and they've never seen 
5,000, 10,000, 20,000, 100,000 at one time in their bank account, much less 500,000 or a million dollars. In those situations, they say, oh yeah, definitely sign me up for that without actually looking at what the the contractual obligations are that are associated with signing those deals. At the end of the day though, you know, life just goes on and uh, I, I was just having a conversation today Life is really like water. It's, it, it's fluid, and basically uh, the time that you have takes on the shape of whatever container that you, uh, that, that you put around your life. And so if you put a container around your life where you get that upfront advance, and it's a big upfront advance, and you're able to do in a smart way what you should do with that, and you're keeping track of your accounting and when that advance is recouped, et cetera, then that may be the right pathway for you as opposed to delaying the gratification and waiting 18 months to actually let the publishing or the royalties trickle in. So let me ask you this, because a lot of times, especially with producers, there's been a lot of record labels, won't name any record labels, but there's a lot of record labels where producers say that they don't get paid, right? It's like a, it happens all the time. Mm-hmm. So why is it such an epidemic with producers specifically producers making beats and getting delayed on their payments or not getting paid um, because you hear about that all the time and even like big name producers and they go on social media and they make a big deal about it it's always like oh I have a relationship with you and you'll get me on the back end and it never happens that happens all the time yeah Yeah, I mean listen like I said all of all of those situations are directly correlated to what you negotiate up front and I would I would just say that in many cases, one of the most uncomfortable conversations to have, and unless you have an advocate or you have the wherewithal to have that conversation right there in the session, that uncomfortable conversation is, hey, what part of this record do I own? When do we get paid? How is it all going to be broken down? And where's the paperwork for it? It almost seems that antithetical to to the creative process, right? Because the creative process, you want to be open, you want to be open to ideas, people want to be sharing back and forth, and the last element of uh, of that process is to be sitting back and saying, okay, what percentage of the song like, is like this a prenup. line? <laughs> like yeah. a prenup, messes up the love. Yeah. It's, it's, but it's a, I, I just believe you, you get what you negotiate, uh, and you may not even get what you deserve, you get what you negotiate, right? And That's so, for me, I think that, uh, you know, we just have to get more comfortable with the discomfort and it that just needs to be a uh, a requisite of doing business and once you're at that level and you understand and folks that work with you understand that a requisite of doing business is to just have that upfront transparent conversation then once both sides agree then you allowed to run down on people for the money that's owed because there is no confusion uh in terms of having some sort of like you know fugazi conversation as opposed to having whatever you need to have in writing and so uh, you you get what you negotiate yeah so i'm imagining you know when you walk into these tables obviously you come from a highly educated background i think you you said your dad wanted you to study law is that true law (laughs) medicine you know whatever was a guaranteed pathway that somebody was going to get so did you did you feel when you sit at these tables obviously you you have a distinct uh, advantage knowing that you know what they're not talking to somebody who's uneducated in this game listen i would say that baby and slim sitting at these tables they also had an advantage because they were moving a hundred thousand mixtapes a week Mm -hmm. so the education is 
the education comes in whatever format that you uh, achieve or the, uh, accumulate the education, right? Mm-hmm. So it's really up to you to to educate yourself. You know, you don't. I mean, I didn't go to Harvard for music business. I I read it myself, and so I think the, probably some of the most astute business people in the music business they learn from being observant they learn from having great relationships they learn from deciding that they wanted to be mentored by the best attorneys the best managers and they you know they had the transparency into the deals and so i think that you know nowadays like i said with with the with the amount of information that's readily accessible there's really no excuse for someone to enter into a deal blindly unless they intentionally just want to be ignorant about the deal. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, you know, we live in an age of media where you can find anybody, you can connect with anyone, uh, they may or may not respond, but you can at least reach out. You can ask for an an introduction, you can ask for a referral, you can ask for a recommendation, and you can go get the knowledge. And so you wanna be great, just be around the greatest uh, and uh, and absorb as much knowledge as possible. And before you sit down at the table, make sure that you, you've done your homework and your research so that uh, even in the absence of knowing what you need to discuss, you can ask the right questions mm-hmm. so that people understand that you, you know, you know, slouch when you come to the no- when you come to the negotiation table. So what is the um, you said the, the royalty administrator company? Song Trust. What, what, Song Trust. Can you, can you explain that? I never heard that before. Yeah. So basically, you know, you're, you're getting whatever the streaming services are paying you. And at the same time, you're also entitled to a royalty as a publisher of the music and a writer of the music. And so those publishing and writing royalties have to be collected and administrated uh, by, uh, for, for me, the beauty of Song Trust is that those royalties are actually collected and administrated on your behalf in all of the countries and territories around the world. So mm-hmm. that includes like, okay, you know, what happens you know, you yeah, you get paid for your Spotify streams. What happens when your record makes it onto the radio in some obscure country? Or what happens when your record is actually being used in a video game? What happens when your record is actually being played in the nightclubs in, you know, some overseas country? All of that is actually being tracked, and there's a, there are a, a massive number of artists who completely overlook that as a revenue stream and so I think one of the greatest takeaways from my meeting recently like I said with with, with uh, downtown music holdings was that you know there are a number of creators who once they put their music through DistroKid or TuneCore they they get those checks and they think that's it mm-hmm. when really there's an entire other world of of uh, publishing royalties that can be connected. You just need to hire an agency to do it. You give them a commission for doing it, and that becomes an additional income stream for you. So when you're talking about, I, I kind of think like when streaming, I can get how they track the data. Uh, when it's played on the radio, I understand how they can track the data. How does that happen in a nightclub? Like I'm not. You just turn work? like really for me. Every time I uh, every time I perform overseas, there 
they they are keeping track of the set list. So I even get paid to perform my own music. So like a DJ has to give the set list to the the venue. They give the set list, Got you. and and uh, you know in, in Europe I think it's called GEMA, G E M A. Okay. And yeah, they they track it the best that they can. You know. So <laughs> yeah. Bottom line is it's just an additional revenue stream, and and I think with the advancements in technology, that may or inevitably that will improve it's just going to get That's better crazy. Right? so like you can literally get booked for a nightclub get paid to go to the nightclub yeah and then if the dj starts yo ryan leslie's in the house and starts right. playing your records you can pay from that too absolutely okay. now obviously it's pennies on a dollar every second once, once once you do that once you do that uh at scale it starts to be, begin to become material and significant so as far as um the new age that we're in with because um, we're going to talk about that in the next segment with the direct to consumer and all of that but for new new magicians artists um, producers specifically where they're not going to the traditional route of going to a record label because now I've seen it from both sides where a lot of producers are mad at producers that's like selling beats for a hundred dollars like but they're getting their music out yeah. and then you know it's, it's easier route so what is what's your take on that for art for producers specifically that might be, I guess maybe devaluing yeah. their we, we saw that happen or, with uh, Old Town Road, right? Like yeah. the dude sold the beat and he gave it to him for like two thousand dollars. Or even um, what's the kid um, Bobby Schmurder? Right. That was Lloyd Banks' beat, right? Originally. Who was that? Uh, Jaleel Beats. Jaleel Beats, right? Yeah. Same thing. But that it was that like record, a thousand dollars, something like that. Biggest record of the year, right? Yeah. Those, 10, 12 million times platinum. Trust me, those producers, as long as they retain their copyright ownership of those beats, and I, I you know, I also know Abe over at BeatStars, those beats are actually being licensed, and at least to my knowledge, they're being licensed, and yeah, you give the license for some low barrier to entry cost so that, you know, some artist that doesn't have a lot of money, but is very creative and could create the next Panda, the next Old Town Road, the yeah. next, you know, um, Bobby Schmurder Smash. You license those beats. You retain the ownership, though, of the copyright. And that's that's where that song trust relationship comes into play because you're definitely going to get paid based on your ownership of that intellectual property. I mean, and so that's why, like I said, you just got to be astute about it. And for for anyone that has, you know, that has time to be hating on how someone else is getting to their bag, I always recommend, like, look, that means you got too much time on your hand. You should really just find another stream of income that you could go chase because, the, you know, everyone needs to make money the way they they feel is best for them. And uh, the impact uh, overall that that creates in the industry is it's just creating more and more opportunity for folks that want to make a living doing what they love, they have the, the right and they have the latitude to price that intellectual property however they want from a licensing perspective. And, you know, when I was in when I was an undergrad at Harvard I had a business school professor and I used to say, Oh man, you know, I don't want any you know, I want to hold on to all my music. He said, Look, Ryan, just hold on to your copyrights because the best thing that can ever happen to you is one of those songs just go. Whether someone paid you up front for it or not, as long as you own the copyright, you're getting paid. And you're going to get paid handsomely as long as as you've done what you're supposed to do in terms of owning that copyright. 
Dope. Well, that was a lot with the music. So now the next segment, we're going to go into what you got going on now. All right. So now we're going to go into the deep dive on the tech side. And um, this is something that we talked about a few different times. So Derek Ferguson, um, former bad boy CEO, all right? Yep. C- yep, yep. CFO. CFO. Um, shout out to Derek. Good guest. And he he was the first one to actually bring this up. Yeah. And then our guy Jabari from R&B Only talked about the data. Yep. And we had Dana Chanel and um, Prince Donnell. And they both spoke about the same thing. Yep. So it's been a kind of recurrent theme on Earn Your Leisure. But, but you have an actual platform in place. And so 2013, I was watching the Breakfast Club interview. So 2013, you said um, you took your music off of streaming services, right? Right. Why'd you do that? Well, I needed to create an incentive for people to really want to connect with me directly. So, I mean, now you can go listen to my records on streaming services. At that time, though, I, I felt that that the the most important, I would say, most important uh, factor or most important attractor or incentive for someone to connect with me directly would be through a conversation about music and new music. And so in order to build the audience that I wanted to build, and in order to attract the audience that I wanted to attract and in order to accumulate the kind of data I wanted to accumulate, I needed to make sure that that audience was communicating with me directly because the convenience of iTunes, the convenience of Amazon, the convenience of Spotify uh, made it such that they really were just like, oh, okay, well, you know, I can just go listen to Ryan's music. Why I got to give him his so- Why I got to give him my cell phone number to, mm. to listen to it? And so to take all the music off the streaming services, it gave me a way to differentiate between those that were passive uh, interactions with me and uh, active interactions with me. And I knew that I can convert the active interactions into um, into uh, a relationship of support. And that support, you know, came to the tune of, you know, a $2 million independent album cycle at that time uh, with no label, no management, no music videos, just a short documentary around the project. And so it was important to make sure that there was one exclusive hub where they could get the product and uh, that the gateway to that hub was for them to just simply introduce themselves so that for the first time, instead of having an anonymous following, I could actually have uh, a following where every single interaction had a name, an email, a phone number, a city, a birthday associated with that. Yeah, because a lot of times you hear people say we have hardcore fans, right? But they just go to shows and like maybe there's 15,000 people in a city. You leave that city, you have no idea. You don't know any of them unless they pay for a package and they met you backstage or something like that. Right. That doesn't happen. Even if you sold records, like there's yeah. no, there was no way to track like, hey, Tanisha from Pennsylvania, yeah. like she bought my album when I, yeah. come, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So like, your mindset going in was like, let me find the core core base and then, and make advantage of that off of that. Yeah, I mean that's that's the foundation of any great business. That's the foundation of any great audience. Is who is your core? Your core, not only are they going to be your greatest supporters, they will also be your greatest evangelists. And so when you have a relationship with both your greatest supporters and greatest evangelists, then that therefore creates uh, the the kind of uh, the kind of foundation for growth and scale uh, 
uh, that I think every single business, whether you're a personal business, whether you're in financial services, whether you're selling insurance, whether you're doing business development for a startup, when you have that core and that core is pleased with your product or service and that core is also evangelizing for you, they're going to bring you referrals and then you scale that exact flywheel and I, you know anyone that studied Amazon understands sort of that flywheel concept. That flywheel starts to starts to starts to work, and that's where you get the kind of Amazon scale. And I believe that that should be applicable to anyone that's starting a business. And I would say uh, the ability to manage that is even more possible when the scale is small. So mm. when you're first starting, you should really just be enjoying the opportunity and the luxury, if you will, of having that kind of relationship with just your first 20 customers, your first 200 customers, your first 5,000 customers. At the scale of Jeff Bezos, let's be real, he actually knows what all of us are doing on Amazon. And at the same time, he only knows that when he's able to log in and actually pull up that record. Same, same for let's call it Delta Airlines. Same for Facebook. Uh, you know, yeah, they they, they they can definitely see your activity. Mm -hmm. The reason why I like the Delta Airlines example is because Delta's data about you is really, I would say, it, it's very specific to their business relationship with you, right? Amazon and Facebook, I would say, you know, the reason why they they've ended up in in Congress and ended up with a lot of questions is because, you know, are they collecting more data than they need to have that business relationship with you? The reason why I love Delta is that Delta just knows, okay, my relationship, my business relationship with Ryan Leslie is uh, is based on him flying, whether it's flying on, you know, chartered aircraft, Delta private jets, Sky Access, or, you know, Diamond Medallion member or Million Mile or whatever it is. And they keep their data really focused on the business relationship with me and how to serve me better. Now, in the in the in defense of, of uh, Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg, they also believe that they need to collect more data to better serve their audiences. So they need to know, hey, Ryan doesn't like this, so I'm not going to serve him ads that look like this. Same with Google. Mm -hmm. or, That's what um, saying that, Google. Yeah, yeah. R R Ryan doesn't like this, so I'm not going to recommend this to him on Amazon. The tricky part is when, you know, is your Echo device listening to you? Is your you know Apple device there's listening 1, to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, One thousand percent. No. Right? There's, a, there's gotta be a mic in the phone. I'm telling you, like there'll be conversations and it won't even be me talking about it. I could be in the room with somebody and let's right. say they're talking about getting a new oven. Like right. I'm telling you, like I go to my phone and the first ad will be like a Best Buy. No, nah, but the right. crazy the crazy, crazy thing is like the, the, the crazy not to go off topic, but really not off topic. The crazy thing that happened to me when I really started to get scared about technology is that I was on the phone. I think I might have been on the phone with you, Troy. And we I was talking about something like let's say like vacation in Jamaica, something like that, right? But on my phone. So after the conversation, I'm verbally talking about this. I go on my laptop, which is a complete, it's not an Apple device at all. It's like a Toshiba. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> I go is. on Google and it's like a vacation for Jamaica thing mm -hmm. that pops up. So I'm like, how did that transfer from my iPhone to mm -hmm. a Toshiba laptop in five minutes? Like, same mm -hmm. router. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. How did that happen? Yeah. So, I mean, listen, the fact that the largest technology companies are doing this at scale. And when we talk about a scale, 
Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram, managing hundreds of millions of people, that for me is just an indicator that A, the technology exists for relationship management at mm. scale. So the technology already exists. And B, for someone that has any level of ingenuity, that technology can be leveraged on a personal and business level no matter the scale of your business. So what that means is as long as Google, as long as WhatsApp, as long as Instagram, as long as Dropbox can have six, seven hundred million, maybe a billion users, and it's all managed. And when you log into your Gmail account, it's not mixed in with somebody else's email. It's all your it's all very well organized. When you log into your Google Drive, it's all well organized. The fact that the technology infrastructure exists the fact that the technology infrastructure is now being productized, so a lot of your favorite businesses are running on Amazon Web Services. Mm -hmm. AWS. So whatever Amazon is using to run their back end, you can also just subscribe to that service and run your back end that way. So my, my excitement for this, especially for our community, is as long as you have the ingenuity like i said and you have the vision and you have the blueprint because the blueprint's already been laid here's how you actually can manage 600 million people then they're really once again the only limitation is really you the only limitation is how great of a team can you put together the only limitation is how big is your vision the only limitation is um, how great are the relationships you could put around you to believe in your vision? And so, you know, we watched Steve Stout go out to uh, Silicon Valley and raise seventy million to make the record company of the future. We watched, you know, two yeah. kids from Brazil who built the PayPal of Brazil come and build a credit card company called Brex, turn it into a one point one billion dollar business in two years, right? Teenagers too. And so, yeah, t you know, teenagers, teenagers right? Yeah. And so, that's what I'm saying is for us as a community. It's important to a understand that the knowledge exists and the information is just readily available and it's abundant. Number two, though, is the limitation that you place on yourself is going to be directly correlated to the kind of impact and change that you actually can make in the world. And so I believe that it's, it's time for us. You know, people always say, hey, you should dream big. I'm saying dream bigger. I'm saying that... Um, as long as Amazon can be what it has become, then whoever is coming next, because of the speed of technology, they're going to be able to build the Amazon or the Facebook or the Google or the Instagram of the future in half the time or a quarter of the time. They just need to A, have a vision that's big enough and B, be very intentional around the relationships that they build around the actual vision and those people have to buy into that vision. And that could be, you know, your vision for yourself as a music artist, yeah. your vision for yourself as an entrepreneur, your vision for yourself as a, a software developer, as a medical doctor, as an astronaut, whatever your vision is, you've got to put great people around you, the best people around you, because the best people actually attract one another mm -hmm. because they're all united in this concept that they want to impact the world in the same way that you do, which is on the greatest scale. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the things that um, you kind of preach, and I love it. It's like there's a bunch of people over here that have the ideas. They just need to find the people with the capital to help them get the, out those ideas. And relationships is something that you're big on, right? And, and, and that's what, I mean, pretty much Superphone is based off of that. Right. And I know you have this, this pyramid of uh, 
the, the pyramid yeah, of, of intimacy, intimacy. Yeah. relationships. Yeah, I, I'm interested because in the pyramid, you start with obviously the at the bottom of the list, social media. Right. Why is that? Well, I would say that social media is almost like a virtual representation of walking around the streets of New York. Right. So anyone that you see on the streets of New York or riding the trains or however you're walking around New York, you actually do have the option of speaking to them. Right. Okay. So you could be in Times Square and, you know, 10, 20,000 people in Times Square. As long as they're standing there and walking the same street with you, you have the option of speaking with them. Mm-hmm. Whether they're going to speak to you is up to them. New York. You have the, <laughs> you, you have the op- you have the option. Right. Same on the internet, right? Social media, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, whatever social platform you're on. As long as they're there and they're sharing, you also have the option of reaching out and speaking to them, whether it's through a direct message, whether it's in a comment, whether it's in a retweet or reply, whatever it is, they obviously have the option of whether they would like to respond. The connectivity is there. So uh, I would say the expected response, and that's why you just say, oh, in New York, (laughs) <laughs> because there's already right. built, there's a stigma there. there, there, it's already built in the expected response time. So once you start on social media and you're basically and that's basically a, 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 a virtual representation of what's happening in the world. If you're just walking around the expected response time or the expectation for a response is very low. Mm-hmm. Right. Once you can move up and you actually can get an email address. Yeah that expectation for a response goes up. A little bit higher. Yeah. So you went social media, I think you said DMs, and then now we're at email. Right. So you get from DMs to email. The beauty of email as well is the fact that nine times out of ten, when you get someone's email, you've been introduced by someone. So you say, like, just how I say, hey, put me in touch with your guy from from the R&B, and he's doing texting. I'm going to get a warm introduction. So it's not just me reaching out. Randomly. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm getting a warm introduction on email, right? That can also happen on text. What I like about text, though, is the fact that text allows you to turn up from texting to a phone conversation mm-hmm. very quickly. And when you have that kind of rapport, you're really going to see who wants to work with you yeah. when you can take stock of who actually answers your phone call, especially in 2020. Who's actually gonna answer the phone call, right? And then that continues up the pyramid. Okay, yo, we had a phone call. Hey, look, why don't you pull up at this time? You got that in-person, and then you continue moving up the pyramid from there. So, yeah, I wanna talk about Superphone, but before that, I wanted to go back to the, you said you made $2 million after, off that, album when you took it off so can you detail like how did you do that was it through your merch was it through live shows a combination of everything yeah. like L- what's live 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 made up the majority live shows yeah so so when i put my number on twitter and say hey everybody shoot me a text there were thirty five thousand people that texted in the first response that everyone got and whether you're texting you know you texting me for the first time or you see any of these other celebs i mean they're now six seven years later everybody finally caught on <laughs> you know what i'm saying Visionary. but the, fir- the first response is it needs to be automated right and so for you to be able to to manage the scale and that first response is always thanks for texting i would love to know who you are so please, you know, put your information in my phone, right? Because I'm not going to type everybody's information. Yeah. Yeah. So here's a form you can you can actually put your information in my phone, so I know who's even texting me. At that point, th- 
the difference I would say between my 2013 campaign and the campaigns that I'm seeing now is that there was a very specific intent captured at the initiation of the conversation. So I didn't just say, hey, here's my number, shoot me a text, what's up? I said, look, shoot me a text to get my new album. So they shot me a text. I already know the reason they're texting is to get they my want, new they album. Want the product. What's your information? Once I have the information, here's a link to get the album. Once that intent is captured, then you have an incredibly high conversion rate. So one out of every two, about 17,000 people actually bought that record. They bought it for $10, that's 170,000, right? The difference though is that I now have a Rolodex, a record, a ledger of every single person that's willing to actually spend money with me directly. So now, not only do I have names, not only do I have emails, not only do I have telephone numbers, I have city and state and country information. Mm -hmm. So now I'm going on tour. You got the real gold. You're going on tour, people go to concerts because it is a social experience. So, yeah, you might go to the concert if none of your friends want to go. You still figure out a way you go by yourself, but you're still in a room with a bunch of people. You guys are connected by the fact that you appreciate the artist that's on stage. For me, in that situation, even though only 17,000 people in my phone actually bought my record, they all brought a friend or two or three or five to the concerts when I announced them. We sold 40,000 tickets at 60 euros a ticket. <laughs> You could do the math That's there. like five albums right there. <laughs> right. Voila. <laughs> you know? And so it's really just, and like I said, it, it, you know, there's obviously ancillary income that happens from that. There's publishing Merch, revenue stuff. and yeah. merchandise, et cetera. For me, you know, I, I, I really prefer digital goods um, because, you know, there's a cost of goods, you know, when you have merchandise mm -hmm. and there's a cost of inventory, there's a cost of shipping. And so digital goods for me have always been my preference uh, just because they have unlimited scale. And uh, as long as you're delivering value, hopefully your content is going to be evergreen. And so that's why I always I always um, remind an artist that even though you may feel like your music is is outdated to you it's actually brand new for the person who's hearing it for the first time and the reality is that even if you went platinum there is still a large number of people around the world who have yet to have even heard your record <laughs> yeah. one time <laughs> so you have the ability uh in music which is always why i say look just create the best music you possibly can because great music is evergreen, you know, and so you know, I'm 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 doing some real estate uh, development um, uh, and investments in in Brooklyn, and so you know, sometimes you'll walk into some of the whether it's the mom and pop stores or or just the bodegas or wherever, and they'll be playing some great you know old school music. I'd never heard the record before. I'm putting my Shazam up because for me, it's still that experience of discovering that music for the first, first time. time. Yep. It's 30, 40 years old, you I, know? I love what you said as far as like how many people don't know you um, because that happened. I, I realized that like now with the podcast, it's become very popular, especially in our community. And we went to an event, Curl Fest. I don't know if you've heard of it, but um, yeah, one, yeah um, one of our guests on the podcast, a friend of ours, she does it. So we had Curl Fest this year and it's like 20,000 women. And um, not a lot of men, and uh, <laughs> like at least probably like 20, 
20 um, people came up to us like, yo, we love your podcast. So, so at first, I'm like, this is dope. Like, we feel like, you know, we made it. Right. But then I'm thinking, <laughs> all right, 20 people recognized us, right. which is dope. But there's 20,000 people right, here. Yeah, like, exactly. how many people? We still got so much right. more I tell to penetrate. Every day. I tell yeah. them every day. Like, I, my life is, is so much duality. Like, I go to work. Most of my coworkers don't even know I do a podcast. Right. I walk down the street. Most people don't even know I'm a teacher. Mm-hmm. But like, there are rare cases. Like we're in Houston, Ian. Somebody will say, "Oh, you know, I love your podcast." It's right. like, all right, this is cool. But yeah. like, now nah, we got so it much just shows further you to the, go. The, the yeah. penetration. You can yeah. never get caught yeah. thinking that you like made it because yeah. there's always a bunch of people that don't yeah. know who have you are. no clue yeah. who you are. Yeah, and also just to be just to keep it a hundred, you still can be ridiculously wealthy just from a niche audience. You know. Um, I would say that you know that there there exists a number of Gen Zers that may not even know who Oprah is, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. That's a fact. The audience though that she's created, that's her niche audience, and that's a that's a loyal audience, and that audience is not just limited to the viewers; it's also limited to the television executives that love her content and want to syndicate it, right? And so I think that uh, you know. The I would say the conundrum of scale or the dilemma, if you will, of scale is unless you really have the technological infrastructure to have a direct relationship with each one of your listeners at scale, you're better off having a manageable a manageable audience in terms of size so that you can actually have a depth of a relationship with those folks. I have yeah. folks, uh, you know, you look at my socials my socials compared to the the biggest uh stars or influencers on instagram i'm i'm sitting at 360,000 followers i know that in my core though i have folks that have spent four five six seven ten thousand dollars with me and i know every dollar they spent i know the products they like etc and so you know that depth of relationship on and and that's sort of in any uh in any vertical, in any circumstance, the depth of relationship is always going to yield, I would say, just a greater reward in general. Yeah, sometimes less is more. My graduates from my school being Forbes, bag drop. Bag drop. <laughs> F- a mic drop. Bag drop. Bag drop. <laughs>